This is Let's Talk Business with your host, Mark Ebinger. Now, here's Mark. Welcome to Let's Talk Business, a show that talks entrepreneurship with some of the best businesses in the San Antonio area. Coming up on the show today, we're going to talk with Keaton Freeberg, a partner at Texas Suits Law Firm here in the San Antonio area. Keaton focuses in real estate and business law. Keaton, as always, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you back. We're also going to talk with Garrett Schultz, a also a partner at Texas Suits Law Firm. Garrett directs the majority of his practice to business-related law, focusing on civil and commercial litigation. Garrett, first-timer, welcome to the show. Mark, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Digging the beard, man. Thanks. Looks slick. It's getting there. It's are, coming. Slowly. Are you going to do anything like handlebars or anything weird with the mustache? You know, I want to. I think my wife wouldn't be too excited about it, but I'm I'm getting there. You know, I'm kind of hiding it for now. Yeah, but, I can see you trying to hide we'll it there. there. <laughs> I, I'm going like, to be upset if you don't, because I've already... Made it up in my mind that next time we go to court, that it's just going to be out here. Uh-huh. We we saw a picture of Doc Holliday the other day. Yeah. And he's got the little patch right here, and then he's got that real cool beard or mustache. Definitely gonna gonna try that one day, try just it? once. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your host, Mark Evanger, the owner of Crucus Marketing Agency, a company that specializes in hiring virtual ex- executive assistants from outside the United States. A quick reminder for our listeners, you can catch video and podcast versions of the show anytime by visiting our website at satalkradio.com. And if you're a business owner in the San Antonio area and like to have your company featured on the show, visit our website at satalkradio.com or call our office at 210-879-8804. That's 210-879-8804. All right, Keaton, um, as always, we have, an, have attorneys in the house. you got a disclaimer you want to get out there? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So nothing said to the, on today's show shall constitute legal advice. Um, should a legal issue arise, you should seek out the advice of independent counsel. That would be you, maybe? They should seek your they, You know. <laughs> if it's not me, we'll find somebody. But yes, I would like it right, to be. Right. Of course. <laughs> All right. Uh, so you brought a guest today, um, Garrett. So... Um, Garrett, what, tell me a little bit about your background and how you got involved in law and why you do it. Sure. So I'm actually a first-generation American. Uh, my family is from Germany. We moved to the States in the early 90s. Uh, I was born in the U.S., but we went back to Germany right after that and then came back here in the, to the U.S. in the early 90s. Uh, I grew up in West Texas in El Paso, um, went to undergrad in southern New Mexico, and then I moved to the San Antonio area for <clears throat> law school. And there's actually a really interesting story about why I got involved in law, and it involves a speeding ticket. Huh? Uh, when I was in, <laughs> I don't know that I know this story. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I mean, I guess I had to have been 16. Uh, I had an, a Ford Bronco that was my first truck, and it was lifted on bigger tires, and I got a speeding ticket. And I pulled out a GPS, and I got super prepared. I made a chart, a diagram, and everything to show how the speedometer in the vehicle was off because of the bigger tires. And I mean, this was, I was 16 years old. We went to a a JP court, got in front of the judge. I said, you know, judge, I didn't think I was speeding because here's the math. You know, the speed limit was 65 and I was doing 78 or whatever, but my speedometer said I was doing 65 Uh and here's the chart and here's the math and here's what I've done to rectify the situation. You know, here's the new graph that I keep on my sun visor that shows me what my actual speed is versus what my speedometer is telling me. And the, uh, the judge said, man, Garrett, that was a great presentation. You know, what, what do you want to do in life? And I think at that point I said I wanted to be a dentist or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the judge said, you know what? With this kind of a presentation, you should think about being a lawyer. This is exactly what we want to see in, in courtrooms and this and whatnot. And so I said, great, great idea. 
I still got the ticket. I still had to pay for the Guilty. dang ticket. He didn't let me <laughs> off, no matter how proud he was of this. But I think that's what sparked my interest initially and, you know, had some neighbors that were lawyers and started interviewing them and talking to them and decided I, I like talking to people. I like arguing cases and trying to protect people's rights. And so that's kind of what pushed me into it. How big is winning a factor for you? I mean, is, is are you very competitive that way or are you just doing your job? I am definitely competitive. I love winning. You know, it's always it's a great feeling when you walk out having gotten what you were aiming for. Uh, but there's a lot that plays into winning. And I think that successful litigation isn't just about winning or losing a particular hearing. It's about making the right choices and only taking those things in front of a an actual court that you need to. You know, you've got to assess everything that goes on. There's a lot into this that plays a factor. You know, it's it's not just the facts. It's who's your judge. It's who's your witnesses. It's who's, what are your facts. It's what does the law actually say about a situation. And so it, you got to assess all of that uh, and make appropriate decisions. And, and I think got, that, oh, you got research, right? You got discovery, and discovery, not just in in the legal term, but in the whole process of doing what you do is you get to discover new things. You get to find new things, right? And then you have, uh, you know, the art of persuasion mm-hmm. is a, definitely a factor. Absolutely. Um, which you can feed the ego just a little bit. Because you know I mean? <laughs> if you win, it's like, okay, that was me. It wasn't just the facts, but it's the way I presented them, right? Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. I, I kind of get all that. Those are all things that uh, inspire me anyway. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think winning is sometimes rel- relative too because you could also, your job could also be just to mitigate damages. And if you've done that and if you've made it that, you know, instead of somebody having to pay out X amount that they pay out a lot less or maybe they don't pay at all or maybe it's just a slap on the wrist, I mean, I think that that's also a win as well. Right, so it might be b- more than just guilty or not guilty. Right. Or what do they call it in civil litigation? Fault or no fault or what, what's the... Yeah, I, I don't know that there's a specific term, but yeah, liable or not liable. There you go, liable or not liable, but it's also the, the layer or the degree of liability and so forth, which is kind of fun too. A lot of the times people do do things wrong, and it's, you know, sometimes they don't do it wrong on purpose, but they get themselves into a situation, happens a lot in real estate, and now your job is to, you know, keep that, that, that oops that they had from ruining their lives. Right. And like Keaton said, mitigating the damages and taking them from a a $200,000 problem and taking it down to a $50,000 problem or something like that. Now, I'm guessing you enjoy a lot of what you do, but there's got to be an area of it that maybe is your favorite. If you could focus more of your time on that area of your process or, you know what I mean, what would that be? That is easy. Cars. Uh, (laughs) Cars are my hobby. I meant with respect to case preparation. Oh. (laughs) Now you know how much he likes oh, no. cars. No. So I only do this so I can buy cars. That's the whole thing. No, no. It goes, it goes more into that. So okay. I said cars because I, I like to build cars on the weekends, right? I've, I build hot rods and rat rods and things like that. And that's what I enjoy doing in my spare time. And so the cases that I like focusing on relate to cars as well. Uh, I like, you know, taking something that I know a lot about and advocating for that. And that's why I think that, you know, that's why cars came to my mind so quickly. My favorite part of the whole process is the actual presentation, is once you have all of your evidence collected, you've got everything together, and you can create that story. And then you can get in front of a judge or a jury, and you, you finally get the opportunity to take you know, the year of hard work that you've put into preparing everything and, and telling the story. 
Okay. That's my favorite part. But why do you like it? Is it what aspect of that presentation? It's like for myself, it's like it's my opportunity to be on stage mm -hmm. and to, you know, argue my point, that mm -hmm. persuasion again, because I like that part of it, which why I do this a lot. I mean, it's I, I get some of that here. It feeds my ego just a little bit. But so <laughs> what part what part of that do you really like? That's absolutely it. It's it's being on stage. It's being that that center of attention for a moment. You know, something else I've done, I, I acted in a play ah, a couple of years ago. What play? It was a rendition of Chicago, um, and it was put on by a group of lawyers here in San Antonio. It's called Ethics Follies, and uh, we we teach ethics rules for CLEs, for lawyers. Um, but I got to act on stage. I was backup. I wasn't cool, but I got to wear, wear flippers and a wetsuit and whatnot. It was real neat. <laughs> but being that center of attention for a little bit, I like me. that. I love it, and so I think that's why I like the the trial end of it. Huh. Well, yeah, that's. I've heard you speak before. You, you actually, I've heard the story about the uh, the ticket, and I heard oh, that before. Yeah, at that, that lunch event we were at. <laughs> but, um, but so I, I get that. What about you, Keaton? What's your favorite part of that whole process? Y yeah, I was telling Garrett the other day. I don't know what it is, but discovery. I've huh. I love depositions, and I love uh, coming up and crafting discovery requests. It's just I don't know what it is, but. That's for me. I think you would have been a good <laughs> detective. Um, I, I worked with a guy who was he was more in that discovery. I'm more of the stage guy, right? But when you partner those together, it's, it can be very, very effective, especially in the uh, interrogation room mm -hmm. uh, or witness interviews or whatever else. Mm -hmm. Kind of cool that way. Absolutely. It, it's, it's a key component of getting the case ready, right? Um, and most, most civil <laughs> litigators that I talk to don't like discovery. There's a lot of rules that relate to it, and then you you know you send out all these discovery requests, and you get answers back that are just riddled with objections, and now you got to fight harder just to get the answer to the question that that you need answered to be able to present your case, and so it's great that Keaton loves the discovery end because I can rely on him heavily to help me get these cases prepped, and then he can rely on me to present absolutely the that he's gathered, so it works out well. That's a pretty good dynamic of so Texas suits. Tell me a little bit about. Uh, what you guys have going on over there and how you work as a team. Yeah, it's great um, because I think we handle a lot of breach of contract issues, DTPA issues, which we'll probably get into a little bit mm -hmm. uh, more later. But um, a, lot, a lot circles around business and real estate. Um, and, and business could be that, that uh, contract, whether it's somebody buying a car or somebody taking a car to a shop to get fixed, still going to usually fall under some sort of a breach of contract deal. And so whether it's real estate or business, um, or litigation or transactional, that's kind of what we, what we handle. And everybody kind of has their own, own uh, area. As we talked about with Shanna, she handles a lot of our transactional stuff. And so sometimes Shanna and I will team up on a transactional deal. And then Garrett's really big on the, on the litigation side. So like you said here, sometimes I'll handle discovery and he'll, he'll take, it to, take it to trial and handle, handle that aspect. So That's pretty cool. That's really good teamwork mm -hmm. there. All right, so Texas Deceptive Practices Act – Tell me a little bit about what that is and why it's significant. The Deceptive Trade Practices Act is uh, codified in the Business and Commerce Code, and it is probably one of my favorite pieces of legislation. And it does a lot, <clears throat> in layman's terms, to protect individuals from the wrongdoings of companies or other individuals. And so it's designed to keep other people people or companies from getting away with making misrepresentations or, you know, lying to you to get your business. You know, an example would be, uh, you know, I've got a, a widget that I'm selling you and this is the greatest thing that's going to make you a billionaire tomorrow. 
And because of that, it's, you know, the, the law is designed to keep that from happening and to keep, you know, people from getting away with that. The neat thing about the Deceptive Trade Practices Act is that beyond just, uh, you know, punishing or, or making something right, it actually has remedies that will, you know, punish you for the wrongdoing. And it's made to dissuade that entity from doing it again or the next person that reads about it from doing it again. So that's a, it's a cool piece of law, um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it actually specifically says in the law, this law should be liberally construed to promote its underlying purpose, which is just to protect the consumers. Right, right, because the consumers have less knowledge and really less, you know, because if the corporation is rich and, you know, I mean, they've got lots of dollars and lots of lawyers and they can just steamroll over everybody else, that's not really fair. Mm-hmm. Right. So give me an example of a, can you give an example of like uh, cases you've worked on? Solar panels. Ah. Very popular here in Texas. And you'll get that solar panel salesman that'll come to your door and they'll say, you know, I looked at the size of your roof and if, if you let me put panels on your roof, the, the energy company here, CPS or whoever it may be, they're going to have to pay you $700 every single month. And then you as the consumer, you know, you don't know the first thing about solar panels, but that sounds awesome. You're going to make money off of this electricity. Yeah. So you say, yeah, where do I sign? What do I do? Sign the contract. And you just now relied on that misrepresentation by the salesman to put these panels on your roof. And then they come, they install the panels. Unfortunately, half the time they don't work for the first three months. They got to come back and do them over and over again. Mm. And then they finally do work. And now that's reduced your energy bill from... I don't know, $200 a month in the summer down to $180 a month. But you're paying an extra $400 a month for those bit, for those panels. And so yeah. that's a that's a big one that I see a lot of uh, in this part of Texas. And I think it's dying down slowly. We don't have as many solar panel salesmen coming around anymore. But right. there was a, a period of time where it was just rampant. And, I mean, we had 14 or 15 cases with that same set of facts at any given time. And, and it could be in-person misrepresentations. It could also be online misrepresentations. Your website could be, um, you know, could say that you can do X, Y, and Z. We specialize in X, Y, and Z. You take your, well, let's just call it your vehicle to to a shop to go get worked on. or um, And they say, you know, I specifically work on, uh, on Audis or I specifically work on uh, Mercedes. And then you get there and they spend a bunch of money on diagnostic fees and they don't know what they're doing. Um, if, they're mis- if they're representing all of this on their website, um, that can be an issue to a consumer because I'm relying on that. You know, I got my car towed over to your shop, cost me 500 bucks, and then I paid you diagnostic fees, and you still don't know what's you know what's going on. But then I could take it over to this other mechanic, and they could solve it right away. That, that's a good one too. We have quite a few of those. I, I just finished a case a month ago down in Victoria County where the, that exact thing happened. This guy said, you know what, I've got this body shop. We do amazing work. Uh, you bring me your vintage Mustang, and I will do the best paint job you've ever seen on it. I'm going to fix it all perfectly, and for $20,000, I'm going to give you back this beautiful show-quality car. And then six months later, eight months later, a year later, the client gets his car back, and the paint job's not great. The prep work wasn't done right. The paint starts bubbling and chipping the fender doesn't match the deck lid or things like that. And we took that to a jury in August and the jury agreed with us. That was a misrepresentation. That's not what should have happened. So, so when that happens, you guys, the, your, I guess the, your client would recover all of the attorney fees as well. 
as part of that? So as part of the case, we de- we got a judgment for them, yes. Uh, but when you say recover, that's a very specific term. So, <laughs> and, and this is something that I have a, an honest conversation with all my clients about before they even become clients is what we're really good at is getting a piece of paper because that's what you get from a court. You get a judgment. Just because a judge says you got to pay $100,000 doesn't mean that that judge is going to show up at your door and take $100,000 from you because a lot of the time people don't have that money laying around. Mm. And so will the client recover? That's the goal. That's what we fight for. That's what we aim for. There's a lot of work that goes into judgment collection after the trial's over to, you know, get the cash in the client's pocket. Mm. And I mean, we've had cases where we collected 100% of the judgment and we've had cases where we collected, you know, 30% of it and then the debtor went and filed for bankruptcy. And all of a sudden, you know, we're having to chase him around a bankruptcy court. I've got a, a client that I've worked with for nine years now. And we have chased the debtor from Arizona to Utah to California to Texas. And they're still down in Houston, Texas at this point in time. But we're just keeping the judgment alive and keeping the pressure on him. It's not so much about the collection at the end of the day. but And, and, and also here, Texas is a, is a debtor-friendly Very state. Debtor friendly. So, I mean, you you know, you know have your homestead protections. You have a certain amount of money you can keep in the bank. Because we're in Texas, you get like ten head of cattle or something like that that you get a that you get a hold on to. So there's it also you know in the beginning when you're when you're taking on a case, evaluating the potential to collect and the ability to collect and and walking through that with a client, letting them know, hey, this this is you may or may not collect. And also while you're going through this process, we can say, hey, look, if we take some sort of a settlement here in the middle. Where there, where there's a guaranteed payout, and then we dismiss the case or something like that, is you know sometimes a, an, an option to to get around the inability to collect after the fact. Yeah, it's an interesting point about chasing <clears throat> around for years later trying to get the money. So, what if you're the you're representing somebody who's being sued for that deceptive <laughs> practices? So, have you represented clients that side? Okay, so what does that look and feel like? Well, it, it, at the end of the day, it goes into that mitigating your damages. It's, you know, we have to make an, or do an honest assessment mm-hmm. of whether he's guilty or not guilty, whether he's liable or not liable, whether he actually committed what he's being accused of. You know, the DTPA process starts with a, a claim letter, a demand letter. And so you, you've got to send that demand letter before you file that DTPA lawsuit. And so a lot of the times our clients will get the letter and then there's specific provisions in the code about having to respond to that letter or not responding, making good faith offers and whatnot. So, you know, there's a, a big component that's trying to figure out what's the risk to us, what's going to happen. Is this person actually going to go through with the lawsuit? Because that's, you know, that's another big factor. It's not cheap to file a lawsuit. Most lawyers are going to ask for a $2,500 to $7,500 retainer for a case like that. And a lot of the times people don't want to pay that but they're willing to pay the you know, $500, $750 for the demand letter. And so you might get the demand and say, hey, well, let's see what happens. Let's see if they actually do come sue you. Oh, well, yeah. Or tactics. You know, it's, a, it's the assessment of, you know what, you've got a huge risk. This goes to trial. Jury's going to absolutely despise what you did. I despise what you did. <laughs> Fix it. Let's yeah. make this right right now. And that's an, you know, it's an honest conversation you got to have with your clients. Hmm. Anything else on the DPTA? Did you guys want to hit? Yeah, well, 
I guess, you know, in addition to car cases and, uh, and whatnot, this comes up all the time in real estate, all the time. So when you're purchasing a home or when you're selling a home, sorry, when you're selling a home, you know, you're under contract, you're going to end up selling out a sell, sending out a seller's disclosure to the, to the buyers. And what I see time and time again is people, everybody's excited. I'm selling the home. We're, we're probably moving into a new home. So we're going through the seller's disclosure and we're just, you know, no, 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 no. There's no, there's no problems with the, with the home. And when you, you know, but then when you s- slow down, you think about it, you know, oh, you know, is there a big crack on the floor? Is there a big crack in the stucco? Um, you know, is there water leaking somewhere? Did it come up once or twice? And so these are things that I, I like my, my parents just sold their house recently. And I said, look, disclose, 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 just over disclose, over disclose. And you're going to put yourself in a great spot. So, but in the event that those issues were not disclosed, that's when this DTPA action can roll around as well as a, as well as a breach of contract issue. Where do you <laughs> see that actually coming in? I mean, like, give me an example of what, is it usually like foundation? I mean, a crack in a sheetrock is not going to be a huge deal unless there's a framing issue or something like that. I have a case going on right now where we sued the seller of a home for not disclosing an ongoing water leak. So my client bought the house, moved into the house. You know, they, they had the seller's disclosure. The seller's disclosure said there was a water leak above the kitchen once. They worked it out. They fixed it. And when he moved in got a big rainstorm and all of a sudden there's water coming in at every single window. And we've since learned that the home wasn't constructed right. When the windows were installed originally, there was some, some flashing and water barriers that should have been there that weren't. And so our allegation is, Hey, you know, you lived in this home previously. There's no way you didn't know that these windows repeatedly leaked. It was an underlying defect in the home. And so that's something that should have been disclosed. And, in these situations, the sellers always rely on the as-is clause. You know, the Texas Real Estate Commission has their promulgated contract that says, we're selling you this property as-is. But as-is doesn't mean as, I, as it actually is. It means as-is as I represent it to you. And so this was represented to my clients to be, you know, a, a watertight home. Yeah, it had a leak once. We fixed the leak. Any stains that are, you know, in the drywall or whatever, they're from that one leak. But it doesn't keep leaking. And that's the... The issue. I mean, if it was disclosed that, yeah, these windows weren't installed properly, or hey, we think there might be an ongoing leak, then we wouldn't even have a lawsuit. But they never did that, and so that's that ties into what Keaton was saying: is over disclose. If you think there might be an issue, tell the buyer about that because that'll keep you keep you more safe. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And you know what I've been seeing a lot recently too is investors going in and flipping houses. And just doing a terrible job. And the issue there is that there's some knowledge component too. So if I go in and I'm an investor, I never see the house. I never do anything to that. I'm not the one out there. Um, I'm having subs go out there or something like that. Maybe I don't know that there's um, a plumbing defect. Or maybe I don't know that um, that, that there's an issue with the ACs or, or something like that. And so um, we have uh, a lot of those investors or a lot of people who are saying, hey, you know, I bought a home. I came from California bought a home, uh, had my agent go out and ch- take a look at it. Agent said everything was great. You know, seller said everything was great. Seller, uh, you know, seller sells it. Seller also kind of, I guess, does this as, as a living. And so they are selling this out of their LLC. And maybe they've, they, you know, they've constructed their LLC right. And they, they only are putting one property in each of their LLCs or they have a series or something like that. And so all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here with a client saying, hey, look, 
there's nothing like when we go after them, this is the only thing that they had and you just bought it, um, which is coming back and tying around back to that whole collection issue. It, it can sometimes be an issue. Wow. Structure. Yeah. Business well, structure. I definitely caught on. It's to important. That. It's like Planning. I didn't even who would have thought, I guess, if you're building, you know, half a million dollar or million dollar homes or something, it makes sense for an LLC on each one. But are, are people really. I guess that's it's so easy to create a series LLC that has the oh. ability to split off and make individual compartments that sever liability from one another that especially for real estate investors that are going to accumulate a bunch of homes and if they're flipping them they're going to be selling them I would not commingle those all together if I don't have to yeah because you're just pulling your your financial pot together for somebody else to dip making in. it and that's the very first thing that I do when somebody comes to me who's the seller I look it up on you know on, on, on BCAD or on real property records what else do they have? Do they, do they have a ton of other homes? Great. Um, are they doing this to other people too? You know, so uh, absolutely. Structure is super important. Hmm. All right. So uh, breach of contract in real estate. What did you want to hit on there? Um, I mean, this it, it all kind of falls under. It, they kind of merge together as one. DTPA and breach of contract, they, they kind of go together. If, if you think about the representation <clears throat> end of it, part of our contract is that representation, right? agreement was for me to buy in this example a waterproof home so if you misrepresented <laughs> this home and the home is that water leaking, resistant maybe <laughs> <or>? <laughs> I, I want a waterproof home submarine style yeah. no. um it kind of ties together you know you might have the dtpa claim and a breach of contract claim all together so i think there's a lot of you know misrepresentation elements to a breach of contract claim um this particular example that lawsuit is about the DTPA, but it's also a breach of contract claim yeah. because what we contracted for was a home that didn't leak, and what we got was a home that leaks. So we didn't get what we bargained for. And depending on the level or severity of the misrepresentation, it can go into fraud too. I mean, it, all of these elements in, in, a, in a cause of action can be satisfied by a certain fact pattern. And so depending on the way that uh, on the disclosures or the misrepresentations, it could, there could be a variety of claims that, that are added. So uh, there are a lot of elements, like failure to close. What's happening here in San Antonio in, in this area? What do we? Because we're seeing a lot of growth. Is there any particular case uh, cases that are popping up there? On, on like failure to close? Or, you know, anything with breach of contract. So they, so they What's co common now? Sure. I mean, I see these come up quite a bit, actually. Earnest money disputes, sellers, buyers, there's uh, get-together, there's a uh, buyer gives their earnest money. Some Something goes wrong in the contract at some point in time. Uh, either... Um, buyer doesn't get funding or they go do the inspection, something's wrong or their option period is expired and now they're not all that excited about moving in or something like that. They found another house that they'd rather have. Exactly. That they get, or maybe they found, I actually had one scenario where they found another house. Um, the buyer found another house that, that the seller was going to, uh, finance on their own at a way discounted interest rate. And so they were already under contract. And so we sent out a letter that said, Hey, look, we're going to enforce specific performance on you. We're going to make you buy this if you, you know, if you don't because we knew about this other deal. And they actually ended up going through with our deal like they were supposed to, um, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, that's kind of failure to failure to close. Um, just just really comes down to a money an earnest money dispute. Yeah, and what about contingencies? Failing to meet contingencies as well. As far as like saying they're supposed to get something done, they don't get it done, causes oh. some kind of a problem. You, yeah, usually that actually ends up 
being pulled into the DTPA issue too, if it's big enough. Again, it's always going through and and talking with the client. If they come in and they say, hey, look, um, there's a plumbing issue that they were supposed to fix and they didn't and it's going to be 3,000. Well, to fix it, well, maybe it's worth it, like Garrett said, to send out that demand letter, but maybe it's not worth it to go all the way through to to take this thing to trial over that. So, um, so yeah. What are you seeing in the car world as far as litigation? What do they focus on? Breach <laughs> contract? I don't know. Yeah. A, a lot of it is these, you know, it's a, it's an unregulated field, right? You don't have to have a license of any kind to go be a car restorer. If I wanted to, I could open, you know, Garrett's restoration shop tomorrow. Well, you thought about this apparently. I have. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a name um, and a logo already working out. <laughs> and uh, I can absolutely tell you that I am not qualified to paint your car. But I can turn around and market those services, and I'm sure I can find somebody that will bring me their car, and I'll I'll paint their car. I mean, I, I can go to Lowe's and buy some spray paint, and oh, you'll get a car that's a different color, but <laughs> that's not what you bargained for if you take your car there. So uh, at the end of the day, that's that's the most common. You know what we've been seeing a lot of lately, too, is uh, oil change places that, you know, nowadays every oil change place, when you get your oil changed, they're going to show you the dipstick. They're going to make you say, yep, there's oil on there. They're going to put it back in, and then they're going to make you initial little thing that oh. says, yeah, I checked the oil. There is oil in the car. But we've had we've got three right now where on one, the oil filter wasn't tight, and mm-hmm. so it was pumping oil out of there as the car was running. The guy got it down the road, and it died, froze the motor up. Uh, we've got another one where it was an Audi, it was a turbocharged Audi, and so there's a really specific way that you have to bleed the air out of the, the oil line that goes to the turbocharger. Well, the the oil change place didn't know that. So they dumped the oil out, drained it all. Then they walked away and did something else. Air got in there. Then they came back and oh. refilled it, didn't bleed the line. And that woman drove, I mean, she got, I don't know, 30 miles, but that turbo was so dried up, it wasn't getting its oil because there was a, an air bubble in the line and that killed that motor. And so it's just neglect. It's, it's you know, these professionals not, spending the time to get themselves up to speed. Mm -hmm. Not every oil change is the same anymore. And as cars become more and more modernized, I mean, half these cars don't even have dipsticks anymore to where you can check your own oil. So it's uh, in the car industry, it's people not sophisticating themselves, not learning what they need to learn to be able to give the service that they're offering. Oh, yeah. From the service side, I was going to say as an operator, I don't know anything (laughs) about that. So you guys have been involved in some big cases recently. Any of those you want to talk about? Well, we kind of touched on it. Bam! Yeah, you know, COVID really delayed a lot of our trials. How much money are you making? Just tell us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the guy, what's his name? MC Hammer or whatever. He's got his thing up there, and he talks about four billion sold or whatever. Oh, that's McDonald's. I'm thinking of burgers, but anyway. (laughs) Well, all the personal injury lawyers have their billboards all over San Antonio. Uh Forty million dollars here, twenty million dollars there. We're not making nearly that. <laughs> no. We need to. Yeah, I, uh, but we're clients, worth it's, it. It's, 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 yeah, <laughs> exactly. no, absolutely, absolutely. No, um, but seriously, like big cases you guys are working on. Uh, this has been our year of jury trials. They they piled up in 2020. Everything when it when it all went virtual to Zoom, we kind of stepped back and said, okay, I don't I don't want to do a jury trial on Zoom. I watched one, and it was you know. There wasn't a single juror that was paying attention to the Zoom monitor. Yeah. Everyone was kind of off here on the side yep. looking at their phones, which I don't blame them. Lawyers are really boring at times. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we had a we did a really cool breach of contract case earlier this year, took it to a jury in federal court up in Austin uh, successfully. So that worked out. It was a, um, a gentleman that got shorted by his company 
they had a, a loan agreement and the company didn't fulfill their end of the bargain. So that was cool. And then my, my favorite one so far was this, this Mustang case that I referenced earlier down in Victoria County. Um, I'm a, you know, you see a lot of stuff on TV and, and I'm sure a bunch of our viewers or listeners, I guess, um, watch Suits. And mm-hmm. they get this. Oh, un- yeah, I love that show. <laughs> it's, it's a great show. It's so realistic. But yeah. 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 <laughs> it's the farthest thing from me. Uh, you know, I get people that come in and say, hey, can we take this to a jury trial tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> mm, we need a couple more days than that, right? right? But um, it was uh, th- that was a fun trial because I took the hood of the car, the big hood from that Ford Mustang as an exhibit, and handed that hood to the jurors so that they could really look at that paint. Oh, yeah. And it was fun. I mean, and it worked. The jury loved it. They they passed that hood around. Everyone you know touched it and felt the the cracks and the paint and the fading Ooh. and all that. And they're like, yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was fun. And what Garrett had said earlier is, is so true that the amount of uh, preparation that he put into preparing for that time he got a ticket is the amount of preparation <laughs> that he puts into each and every one of these trials. And so you know this has been the year of trials. And so Garrett has been just you know, nonstop weeks at a time preparing for these things to get ready um, to make sure that a hood will make it there, that a hood has the ability to go from somebody's truck all the way upstairs to, to, <laughs> to the jury bo- or to, so that the jury can check it out. And so all these logistics. Um, the logistics. And, I made Keaton carry that hood. Yeah, that's, that's the logistics. <laughs> uh, but he figured it out. He figured out <laughs> how to get it there. Sure. So um, Planning. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So what are you most – I know you're passionate about cars. We know I, – I think we actually nailed it down pretty good for you. It's like I, I know what you're passionate about. You want to do the litigation part. You stand up in front of the jury, do your presentations. Yeah. Uh, I know you, you like cars and you like do car-type cases. Anything you really want to avoid? It's like I hate – I don't know if you can say that, but it's like I hate doing this or that's something I would want to avoid altogether. I, I don't know. I I've become a lot more selective with the cases that I accept. There you go. There's you know, a lawyer answer. In, in, the be- <laughs> in my earlier days of, of being an attorney, it was like, you come to me with a problem, I will figure out how to solve it. I will absolutely, I'll do whatever it takes. Yep. And at this point, you know, I, I don't mind investing hours and hours researching an issue and trying to learn about it and trying to help solve the problem. But I've also learned that, you know, being a little bit more focused on a certain type of case, in this case, breach of contract cases, DTPA cases, things like that, has been a lot better, not only for my own sanity, but also for the business and for mm-hmm. my clients. You know, I uh, by focusing, I'm able to do one job really well rather than a whole bunch of do- jobs decent. And uh, that's a big problem I run into just in trying to, to run a business is I don't want to turn away anybody. Mm-hmm. But I'm at that point now where I'm absolutely turning away a lot of people because I just... I'm not the right attorney to do it. And and that's the thing, you know, when somebody comes in and if we're not the right attorneys because it doesn't fall into our category, that's what, what's great about, uh, I think, what we have going on is we're, we know a bunch of people, we know a lot of people, we'll get them connected with somebody that will take care of them. That's, you know, that's right for their for their specific scenario. Yeah, I, I love meeting with people and learning about their problems, but I'm no longer the guy that's like, and I'm going to be the one to solve it. If I think there's a better lawyer for them at this point, I'm, I'm sending them that way and I'm making that introduction and I'm really enjoying that aspect of it too because I know that they're going to get better treatment, more hands-on treatment with you know somebody else who specializes in family law, for example. I don't want to do family law. I don't like it. Uh, I'm, I know how to do it. I did it for a number of years, but it kind of burned me out. I, I, you know, 
parents fighting over kids is just not what I want to do in life. And so that's stuff that I still get a bunch of, but we refer out and, you know, let, let people handle it that love it. So, and we've got a partner that does our family law work and he does a great job of it and, and he loves it too. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not going to be the one to do it. So Texas Suits is a kind of as a whole uh, business. Tell me, run through the type of cases that you guys typically handle. Uh, for folks, because I mean, I'm hearing some family law, which I didn't even know, and then real estate, business law, but kind of run through what those are. Yeah, so I guess business comes in so many different varieties. Uh, sure. it, it really boils down to a contract, usually. Um, you know, whether somebody's buying or selling a business, um, that that comes into play. And if something goes wrong during that buy or sale, or during that sale, then then maybe uh, there might be some litigation behind it. But there's the transactional component and the litigation component. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I guess a lot of these things come down to to a contract because even real estate is really what is it at the end of the day? What is it? It's a contract. Marriage is a contract. It's, <laughs> it's true. So it's true. <laughs> so a, a lot of these things. Um, we handle we handle probate and estate planning and 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 probate sometimes also boils down to a contract. Um, and that actually ties into real estate as well. You asked earlier what real estate issues we see a lot of. I see a lot of cases where they're trying to sell a property, but there's a chain of title defect somewhere mm. because somebody passed away and the kids kept living in it. And then those kids sold it to a cousin who didn't do a title search or anything. And then that cousin sold it to his brother. And then that brother sold it to his you know, wife or fr- wife's friend or something like that. And so there was never you know, the, the due diligence done to make sure that that title cleanly passed this chain. Um, and so, yeah, that gets us into the probate end. We do quite a bit of probate recently um, that relates to real estate. Yeah, it all ties in, um, I think, pretty well, pretty well together. What about personal uh, injury? Um, no? Don't do we, that. We don't, but we have connections. Sure. And so I, I always <clears throat> tell my friends, you know, if you run into the situation, call me and we'll connect you with somebody that, that I trust, that I know will take care of you because it'll be that personal referral rather than calling a call center. Same thing with criminal? Same thing with criminal. Yeah, we don't do any criminal law. but uh, The I've only got- reason we thought about it is so that we could get on a billboard. We might, you know, personal injury, <laughs> criminal, get on a billboard. Why can't that you could do it as business? I think lawyers are criminals enough. <laughs> we don't need to be doing criminal work. Is that a lawyer joke? I don't know. That's our <laughs> first one. A bad one. <laughs> All right, Garrett, um, anything about you that we didn't cover that you wanted to get out on the floor before we wrap up? Oh, gosh. I, I know you're, you're trilingual, right? You'll try any language? I, that, that I, that's that exactly it. That's exactly <laughs> it. I'm, I'm bi and a half lingual. I speak yeah. German and English fluently. Uh, English is mostly fluently. Um, and I'm trying to learn Spanish. I've, What's your first language? Is it English? Honestly, English and German at the same time. Really? So I, I'm completely fluent in both. Uh, what do you think in? Do you think in English or German? Both. What? I can think what does that even language. mean? What do you think? We think in a different language? Yeah. yeah. I, I get into that a lot with the, the Filipinos I work with for my virtual assistant staffing company, where they think in, in Tagalog, so they have to process it, and it takes a second, right? So it's, there's a little bit of that delay as they're processing the information. That's why it's important. You know, if, if first language, what language do you, do you think in is a good question to ask somebody if they're going to be in any kind of important position for what you're doing communication-wise? I'll tell you where that came into play. I learned a lot of Spanish in high school Mm. and living in El Paso, you know, got it there. At that point in time, I think I was doing a lot of thinking in German because 
at this point in time, when I try to put together a sentence in Spanish, there's still like two translations that happen in my head sometimes from, from the Spanish to the English that I learned in high school and then from the English to the German where I've actually made the sentence at first. And so that slows down my Spanish. And I'm trying. I'm, I will get there one day, but I'm not fluent in Spanish yet. That's pretty good that you can think in two different languages, though. Yeah, that's, that's really I'm good. still kind of blown away. I still kind of <laughs> yeah. trying to Are you conceptualize this. Not at all. Yeah. Otherwise, maybe I would understand what what that meant. But yeah, <laughs> the only Crazy. reason I know is because it's kind of my 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 business deals with some of that stuff there. Right. Because if you know you're trying to get that regular conversation to happen, but there's a delay, there's a reason for it. They're not processing yeah. quick enough from their Tagalog into English. I always thought I was going to use German a lot more in my career. But it hasn't come into play in law much. Um, I will tell you this. One time, there's a, a judge here in San Antonio in the federal court that had a habeas corpus case about a child from... Mother was from Germany, child was here in the U.S. or something. And uh, they called me from the courthouse and said, our translator didn't show up, and the judge knows that you speak German. Can you come translate for us? <laughs> and I said, absolutely. I dropped everything. I drove over to the courthouse. I ran in there, and I, I translated to the best I could. And you know what I learned? I don't know any legal terms oh. in German because my legal education came here in the U.S. I've never practiced law in Germany or, or even thought about German laws in general. And so it was a, a, a an interesting experience for me for sure. Did but you, it was neat to be able to do. Did you bill them for it? I did not, no. You didn't, you didn't no. send a bill to the judge? To, to the federal courts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, uh, Garrett, if folks want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Awesome, yeah. Uh, so best way to get a hold of us is call our main number. It's 210-503-2800. Or send us an email, info at txsuits.com. Or jump on our website, www.txsuits.com. And uh, there's a there's a, an About Us section, and there's a link to all of our email addresses. They can reach out to us directly. Awesome. Keaton, any closing thoughts? Great. No, just thanks so much for having us. This was awesome. This was great, yeah. You Thank you so much, Mark. Good job, guys. All right, as we wrap up the show, quick reminder, check out our podcast. You can catch video version of the show anytime by visiting our website at satalkradio.com. That's going to be it for us. You guys have a great week. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks, guys.